and I'm Dee, I'll be your host, and I've got some people co-hosted, Derek and Angie, and um, welcome, Ralph, and thank you for agreeing to speak for us today. I always love hearing you speak, and um, welcome, everybody, and I guess with that, I'm going to take a relaxing breath, and Derek has returned the recording on, and uh, you're welcome to begin anytime you like, Ralph. You can speak as long as you want about anything that you would like. We would love to hear it. Thank you. Thank you, Dee, and thank you, Derek, and thank you, Mark, and everybody. Thank you all for showing up, for helping me stay sober one more day. My name is Ralph, Ralph K., and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. K stands for Khalil, as in Gibran, Khalil, Gibran. Uh, that's uh, the Arabic uh, spelling, I guess, K-H. Uh, uh, but I go by Ralph K or Ralph. Uh, the, real, the real name is much longer than that. It's Abdul Rauf. So it's a pretty long Muslim name, uh, native of uh, Tunisia in North Africa, uh, 74 years ago. And I've been in the States here for quite a while. I came in 1970, I was 21 years old. Came permanently in 1971. And I've been here ever since, since 1971. I have traveled, of course, uh, to the old country. I've traveled to England many times and to France where I went to school. But I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be living in Los Angeles where the weather is nice. It suits my clothes and it suits my, uh, my bones. So I'm very happy to be here. I uh, don't know where I got to become alcoholic, but I did most of my heavy drinking here in Los Angeles in 1970 and after. And it caught up with me eventually. Uh, it caught up with me till uh, uh, August 3rd of 1999, which is my the date of my last drunk. <clears throat> I uh, drank so much that night to this day, and it's been over 23 years. I don't remember where, the, where I found my car. And as I got into it after I left the bar, which was really the restaurant, and got into it and uh, began driving uh, home. Uh, in, in a stupor, but really in a blackout, because I still don't remember uh, where it was or how I got into the accident, but I did, and uh, it was a hor horrific accident. And I came to, I was across the street, sitting down on the curb, uh, bleeding and uh, in pretty lousy shape, uh, physically. And mentally, I was not there anyway, but physically, I was in bad shape. And, I ended up being hauled uh, by a police car. They asked me if I wanted to go to the hospital. I said, what for? I'm okay. And I ended up in jail. And uh, that was my last drug. I haven't picked up a drink since then. I'll go back to it shortly. But I want to identify because I find it important in, a, in an AA share to identify uh, so that we can all see that uh, uh, where I was and how I got to, to, to this stage or this state uh, of being uh, after uh, so many years of uh, battering myself with uh, alcohol and unwilling, uh, unable really, but certainly unwilling to surrender to the fact that alcohol has uh, taken over my life and has uh, become my master and that I was absolutely incapable of putting down a drink once I picked up it. Uh, I uh, was, I'm, I'm an immigrant to this country, to the United States, and I worked hard, very hard for everything I got. I was, I had uh, 
serious uh, uh, economic insecurity because I had there was no safety net uh, to hold me if I were to fall down. So I uh, I worked and saved and worked and saved and uh, and I drank for entertainment. That's just about the most important thing I did. Eventually, uh, the the drinking had become so habitual that uh, it became a necessity. I had to drink uh, to uh, uh, to go for a job interview, or even to go to meet with clients or to make a presentation in front of a professional association, or to go and introduce the company or my services to a new client. I had to drink, and most of my drinking was uh, really during the daytime, uh, lunchtime. I used to have what they call what we call liquid lunches which is a lot more than the three martini lunch. It was going to lunch, but uh, ending up only drinking uh, because the food can get in the way of the buzzing. And I remember I began to collect uh, violations, traffic violations that involved alcohol. They call them here uh, 502s back then, or DUIs, driving under the influence. I began to collect those in 1978. That was the first one that I had. And I have record of that because I did a little bit of history on my own uh, self when I was doing my inventory. Uh, and it, it was, uh, and I remember that I thought it was bad luck, you know, just uh, bad luck, the fact that this cop on a Christmas Eve would uh, uh, arrest me for uh, making an unsafe lane change. But I was drunk anyway, and, and uh, I was hauled to jail, and uh, they took away my license for uh, that weekend, and then the uh, and then I ended up being released, and uh, I got scared. I got very scared, and I said, you know, this alcohol is becoming a, this, this drinking and driving, or this driving after drinking is becoming a problem. So I, I tried to make sure that I don't drive after drinking. But I uh, continued, I, I said, maybe, maybe I drank too early, or maybe I drank without eating, or maybe I mixed uh, beer and red wine. So I began to switch that stuff. In chapter three, there is a paragraph that talks about the various ways that alcoholics try to uh, moderate or to alter the drinking habit in order to uh, to qualify as not being alcoholic, you know, drinking beer only, uh, not drinking before meals, drinking after meals only, drinking only red wines, etc., etc. And uh, everything I've tried all those, and every everyone failed. And uh, this kept on uh, happening, unfortunately. And uh, by that time, I was married already to my present wife. We've been together for 49 years now. And she put up with me for 25 of those as a philanderer and as a drunk, unfortunately, for her and for me. But it did happen. And I uh, uh, did everything I could to try to stop. I... uh, I would stop sometimes for a week or two, usually after an arrest. And then I would say, okay, I think I learned my lesson. This time uh, I will uh, I will stick to beer only. So I got into Heineken. I would drink only Heineken's. Uh, but unfortunately, I would start with one or two beers in an evening. And then uh, by the end of the week or by the end of the month, I'm back to closing down the bar uh, with drinking Heineken only, still drunk. And still end up in trouble. Uh, I'm, I'm going to cut it short and, and just mention a couple of events, things that happened to me that stick to my mind. 
One of them I've discovered a few years back as I was doing, as I was sober and uh, preparing myself for uh, estate planning, uh, planning uh, what happens when I die, uh, you know, for my wife and my two children. And I came across a life insurance policy I had bought in 1983, <clears throat> uh, was from New York Life. And I remember buying that life insurance policy after my son was born in May of 1983, and after having decided that there was absolutely no way on the face of this planet that I will be able to stop drinking on my own. There's no way. And I figured that death was uh, looking at me in the eyes and that I will most likely die before uh, the end of the year or before my son grows up and so on. So I decided that the smart and the respectable and the honorable thing for a man of my caliber to do is to go and buy a life insurance policy so that when I die, uh, my mortgage or the balance of my mortgage on the house will get paid off by the insurance company. And there will, be, there will remain a, a, a certain sum of money in the insurance uh, policy portfolio to uh, provide a stipend for my wife, to the, my widow by then, to take care of my son, uh, to take care of his education and so on. This I thought was the rational thing to do because I thought that the option of stopping drinking was off the table. I didn't think I'd be able to. So I have essentially abdicated my responsibility, my conjugal obligation to my family. I've abdicated it and turned it over for a, an annual premium to a life insurance company to take care of my responsibilities, which I should have been doing. That was one thing. That life insurance policy I still have, by the way. I've converted it and uh, uh, amalgamated it with other insurance stuff and, and it's now, uh, it's still ineffective. Uh, the other event that I remember very, very well is uh, an arrest I had one time. And this was back in the late 80s, probably in 89 or, or 88. I was uh, arrested. And that night, that day is another day that I had promised myself I would not drink uh, and uh, at lunch at least at lunchtime. I ended up drinking at lunchtime a liquid lunch, usually Grand Marnier or Cointreau or something very potent. Uh, at, at a bar next door to my office. Uh, it's really not a bar, it's a very, very fancy and a very honorable, nice, respectable restaurant. I call it a bar because that's all I did in the bloody place is drink. I didn't go there to eat. But I, I went and sat there and drank at lunchtime, uh, though I had promised myself I won't the day before. And then that night, uh, my uh, associate and I and a couple of clients uh, met at a, another restaurant and we were gonna have uh, dinner there. Uh, we did apparently, I don't really remember what we had, but uh, I, I did end up uh, uh, sitting at uh, uh, the bar before the uh, dinner started, before the client showed up. And uh, they told us that uh, we can uh, uh, have a seat when the client showed up. I ended up being arrested that night by a motorcycle cop and taken to jail. I uh, came to the next morning, uh, early in the morning, and uh, realized I was in jail, seeing all the blue uniforms all over the place, and uh, tried to remember what got me to this bloody place. How the hell did I get here? And again, shaking my head out of desperation and out of exhaustion. As it turned out, you know, I had left the uh, uh, 
bar or the restaurant before uh, and began driving and was arrested and taken back. And I remembered that what happened earlier that night is they offered us uh, a, the, the daily special, I ordered the daily special, which as I recall now, uh, I'm telling the story for the first time in quite a while, I, I ordered their special, which was uh, some kind of uh, seafood, uh, uh, trout probably, uh, uh, cooked on, on, on rice pilaf. But I was drinking their uh, special of the day, which was the month, which was uh, Beaujolais Nouveau, a new freshly brewed Beaujolais, which is a red wine, basically. And uh, what hit me then is uh, uh, the realization that the reason I'm arrested is because I ate, I drank red wine with fish, with white fish. And, and that is a violation, a clear violation of uh, etiquette, of uh, culinary etiquette. I should have had white wine with white fish. And so I blamed it on the fish. I, I didn't say that I'm a drunk, I'm an alcoholic. And that went on in any event, eventually uh, uh, my, my, my egg was cooked. I was really in deep doo-doo. And on August 3rd of 99, in a very fancy restaurant again with clients and with my friend, and I left not knowing where my car was to do this day, 24 years later. Don't remember where the car was, but I got into it and I drove. It was a brand new Lexus RX 300. And they were new still in 99. And it only had about 2,000 miles on it or 3,000 kilometers on it. And I was driving it and I ran into a construction site, the entrance the entryway to a construction site that uh, uh, that apparently had been there for years, two or three years at least, ran into it full speed. You know. And I was, uh, I left uh, the car, uh, when I came to, the car was on fire and firefighters were dozing it off. And I was uh, shaking my head and looking at this place and I was in a daze, obviously. A motorcycle cop came, gave me a field sobriety test asked me if I had uh, been drinking, and I told him yes, and a few drinks, and he said I was very cooperative. I know all this stuff, not because I was aware of it then, but because I had plenty of time in jail to read the police report. And it, uh, and, and eventually a patrol car came and threw me in the back seat of the car, handcuffed and all, offered me a ride to the hospital because I was bleeding, I refused, and they took me to jail. In that police car, in the backseat of that police car, I had my first, uh, you know, some, some would call it a, 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 a psychological change or, or a psychic change that took place. That's what the big book calls it. But I'll tell you what happened. It's really a felt experience. It was not an intellectual exercise. It was purely and simply a felt experience. In, uh, in, in deep trouble and, and facing serious uh, consequences, uh, imminent consequences, I nonetheless was overcome with a sensation of freedom, a sensation of a euphoric warmth throughout my body. I felt like something has happened in this, in this instant that is, that is going to change the course of the rest of my life. And I felt that I was going to be free of uh, alcohol and of drinking that this can be a tusnuva, a new beginning, a new start for my life uh, in, in this instant. But I believe that was, and this is my own opinion today, 
that it really was survival instinct uh, down to the molecular or the cellular level, truly down to, to my very being. Every cell in my body, in my liver, my, my brain, my, my heart, my kidneys, my bladder, everyone was screaming, you son of a bitch, you're killing us. Stop it. I think it was survival instinct, most likely, most likely being expressed through the amygdala, most likely hide, hidden in the hippocampus, in the reptilian part of the human brain, uh, seeking survival, seeking, opting for life, as opposed to suicide, which I was committing every time I was at a glass of wine or a glass of liquor. Every time I, I, I sipped some wine, I was killing myself, killing relationships, killing my life, ending it slowly, but certainly, without a doubt. And I think that surrender, which was pre-reflective, as they would say, it, it, it uh, came, came upon me before the frontal cortex of my brain got involved and in, in, in the decision-making process. The decision was made for me. Some of my religious friends tell me that is the grace of God that touched you in the back seat of that car. And I, I keep pointing that to them that I am an atheist. And I, I, I believe that this is all material, electromagnetic, electrical, whatever the heck it is. But it is really organic and biological. And I believe it was survival instinct that kicked in that is making a decision for me that before my ego got involved and, and making decisions on its own. Now, that, that, uh, there's a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous in the San Fernando Valley. They call her Dr. Montgomery. Her name is uh, Gloria M. Uh, she's been sober for over 60 years, I think 64 years now. And she's still alive. She's in her 90s. And she still speaks it. And she says, you know, and I heard her say this in one of her uh, talks. She says that when the alcoholic surrenders unconditionally, meaning with no strings attached, totally surrenders, the obsession to drink is lost, lifted out of her or out of his body once and for all. And I believe that that's what happened to me. This is from my own empirical experience, my own lived experience. The obsession to drink left me that moment. That, that, that I, it hasn't returned to this day. Every once in a while, a thought of drinking comes upon me, usually when I'm on vacation or something, traveling in, in Paris or in London or, or in Tunisia. But it, it, it's just a, a fleeting moment. It's the brain fart, as they call it. But it, it doesn't stay there very long. You know. but, but, it, but it does happen every once in a while. But it's not an obsession at all. It is just a... Uh, just a, a passing thought you know, that, that I uh, have to keep my guards up to defend myself from acting on it because the fact that an idea can pop up in my head is sometimes uh, out of my control. How long it stays there is under my control. And I uh, make sure that I chase the son of a bitch out of there very quickly by reminding myself that I am an alcoholic and that uh, one drink could kill me. So uh, I, 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 I'm very well aware of that. You know. The, uh, uh, you know, when I came to the next day in jail after I was hauled to, to, to jail that night, 
my, my first thought when I realized what had happened and so on, my first thought was, why did I take Wilshire Boulevard? I should have taken Olympic Boulevard instead. This is the uh, incredible, insane line of thinking of, of uh, my alcoholic state of mind. They're thinking that if I had taken a different road, it would have made a difference. But which is absolutely ridiculous. It is a non sequitur for one thing. You know, if I did, if I took a different road, I may have killed uh, 12 people. I may have killed a family of four. Uh, I may have had another ticket uh, elsewhere. And whether I took Wilshire, which is what I took, or, or another road, doesn't change the fact that I was drunk, that I was inebriated, that I was driving in a blackout. That, that's, that's a fact of life. Anyway, I was sentenced. You know, I, I called my attorney the next day. I had my wife uh, come and help me out of, uh, of jail. I rented a car, and I called uh, my attorney friend, uh, Adrian, uh, who used to drink with me, actually. He, the poor soul, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, he, the poor soul, uh, told me, Ralph, Jesus Christ, man, not again. I think he handled uh, probably a dozen of those. He was able to reduce many of them to uh, unsafe lane change or watered-down form of drunk driving. But he told me in court, once we showed up in court, that you're going to be in deep doo This uh, city attorney, the prosecutor, was uh, handling the case, it was the plaintiff, essentially, which the people of the city of Los Angeles versus me. And so I was outnumbered in that sense. He said, you know, this, this lady is going to throw the book at you. Uh, you're going to end up doing some time in jail, regardless of what I say. And the fact that you have a three-piece suit and that you, are a, a, you have a business, that you have employees, doesn't mean a damn thing, because she's going to tell you that you can still kill a bunch of people if they let you go and the blood will, will be on their hands. So uh, so he told me he'll get me the best deal possible. And, and he did, I believe he did. So I ended up being sentenced to a suspended sentence of prison, about 30 days in county jail, and uh, 18 months of uh, drug and alcohol uh, rehabilitation, face-to-face uh, -face in group meetings, and also uh, 18 months of uh, AA. Alcoholics Anonymous with a court card to be signed and turned over to a probation officer on a weekly basis, on a bi-weekly basis, actually. I showed up in AA reluctantly and uh, did not identify. I thought this is not for me. These, uh, I, I was advised to go to this particular place by the uh, guy at the uh, traffic school. Uh, he told me, in violation of your probation, you better start showing up. Here is one that is on your way home. And uh, uh, I stopped there, and, and there were folks there with uh, tattoos. Uh, some had swastikas that painted, some said white power. Uh, some had uh, chains and ripped pants and so on. And uh, those were the ladies. The guys were a lot meaner than that. And, and uh, I, uh, I, uh, uh, I was judging their appearances because that's how deep I was in my uh, uh, state of alcoholism, practiced alcoholism, you know, years of it, 32 years of it. Eventually, I stayed. I stayed mainly because of a few things that really made me stay. And I'm going to mention a couple of them because they really are important, you know. There was a guy I got to befriend in that uh, meeting, uh, a nice, uh, uh, he worked for Disney, Disney World, Disneyland, 
or Disney, whatever, company, animation. Uh, and it was a handsome, uh, very friendly guy, uh, was newly married. You know, he probably had five or six years of marriage and a couple of young kids. And uh, anyway, he, he relapsed and he ended up dying uh, of, of alcoholism. He choked on his own vomit in a hotel room in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, there was a funeral service for him. I picked up a couple of guys. I was driving without a license, by the way. But I picked up a couple of old signers who were hard of hearing and took them to the uh, funeral, to the memorial service, uh, the funeral service, and uh, in this Catholic church in San Fernando. And uh, they had left, and they were waiting outside after the service. It's uh, very repetitive uh, stuff. Uh, uh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, and so on and so forth. Things called the Rosary or something. Anyway, so uh, I, I, I figured I'd go and pick them up and take them home, take them back to the Alano Club where I picked them up. And they were fighting and talking, not fighting, they were talking loud, out loud. And what they were fighting about is whether, whether this guy, Eric, whether he actually committed suicide or whether uh, he killed someone. And uh, that was the argument, whether it was murder or suicide. It's clearly a suicidal thing, of course. There was no one else involved. But in the car, when they were arguing, as I was driving for about 10 miles, they were, the argument was that Eric did not know, was not sober long enough, has not worked an inventory on himself. Does not really know who he is. He's an alcoholic in, in his full alcoholism. And therefore, he really killed a stranger. And he did not kill who Eric truly is because he hasn't, he hasn't come to realize who he really was. Had he done, uh, uh, sp spent some time and, and, and began caring about who Eric is as a human being and uh, gotten to know his values, his virtues, his worth, his true worth on one hand, and also his shortcomings, on the other hand, that he would have actually gotten to know that he is a worthy human being, worth saving, worth who is worth living. So, uh, so that, that was the discussion between them, and that he hit me hard. I kept saying, "Jesus Christ, I mean, it's really amazing that uh, if someone actually does get to start working on these uh, steps, one can actually come to have a, a full inventory of who he is and get to know himself for the first time anew." Fresh. That was one event. The other was a lady called Jean. I used to pick her up in an assisted living place. And keep in mind, I'm only three or four months into AA at that time. But I took a commitment to pick her up and take her to the Alano Club twice a week, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And uh, she was very devoutly religious. She was a Catholic lady. And uh, and she, she made her know uh, in un uh, unequivocal terms that I am an atheist and that I don't have really time to listen to uh, pontification or to, to any kind of uh, talk about uh, God and God and God and God or, or Jesus or whatever. And that I've had plenty of that, you know, in Jesuit schools early on and, and I've uh, closed the book on that topic. But Jean, you know, kept telling me, uh, she noticed that I was very uh, restless and, and very irritable when I was driving, although I was very polite to her, she's an elderly woman, and she's a likable person. But uh, she said, what's wrong? I thought, this AA crap is not working for me. 
And she said, well, you know, uh, she said, maybe you're not working yet. She said, let, let me tell you, Ralph, what I think, if I were to, to tell you what I think about you, about your problem. She said, you, Ralph, have a twin brother who lives within you. His name is also Ralph. He's an alcoholic, and he knows he's an alcoholic. And he unfortunately realizes, or aware, of the fact that you, Ralph, are depriving him of his medicine, his medicine being booze, alcohol. You're depriving him of it, deliberately depriving him of it. So one of two things is going to happen, or one of two things happens to people in your predicament. Either you will pick up and drink, or the alcoholic Ralph will kill you. In other words, you'll kill yourself. Sometimes this masquerade is an accident or whatever. But she said most of the time, most alcoholics don't commit suicide. They just pick up and get drunk. And she said, for us, the drink is to die slowly on the installment plan. So she said, it's really your, your choice. So I said, okay, Jean, what, what's the solution to this dilemma? She said, the solution is the steps. And I swear what I said is really true. I said, what steps? And keep in mind that I've been going there for three or four months. I've heard the steps read in every friggin' meeting when they do chapter five, they read all 12 steps. It's also the steps were written on the wall of the room where I was sitting for the three or four months that I've been going there you know, in English, in plain English, and somewhat in Spanish also for those who care to. And I never saw them. I never heard them. You know, I just, because I wasn't listening, the reason because I was there physically, but mentally I was solving problems, real problems, problems with the Internal Revenue Service, income tax problems, with the Franchise Tax Board, state of California, problems with my son, who I think was by that time smoking weed. He was 16 years old. Uh, all kinds of personal problems, problems with the company itself, which was struggling financially and having some issues with, uh, with, with some of the uh, shareholders and some of the employees who were uh, not uh, cooperating. Anyway, I was thinking of all things that have nothing to do with me being an alcoholic and being there in order to seek treatment. I was literally wasting time. Thank goodness there was a guy at the, uh, the counter, the coffee counter on the Salado Club. He said, he said, Rap, you're going to be coming to this meeting. For let me look at you. He's been signing my card for a few months. So you're going to be coming here for 18 months, for goodness sake. He says, for 18 months, you're going to be coming here. You can either learn something out of this program and, and put, put your time to use this hour and a half or two hours you spend in this place every single day, uh, well, twice a week anyway. Uh, you're going to either learn something out of it or you're going to waste it. He said, you're going to be like the like the idiot who bought a three-bedroom house and sleeps on the porch all the time, never using the bedrooms. He said, uh, do something rational, something logical that makes sense. Anyway, and, and what Jean uh, said to me, uh, you know, essentially forced me to surrender yet one more time to the fact that I'm really out of, out of answers to this dilemma. So I waited one day when, uh, when she wasn't there to see me raise my hand, and I raised my hand and said, my name is Ralph, I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't want her to see me uh, or to convince her that, I, that she wanted an argument. 
but uh, you know, she I got to know her very well. She passed away shortly thereafter from uh, uh, lung cancer, but she smoked like a fish because she wouldn't give up smoking, even though it was on her list of character defects that she was supposed to work on. She had over 30 years of sobriety, but uh, it is what it is. I began to, once I said that I'm an alcoholic and I'm uh, name is Ralph, I began to uh, practice uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in all of my affairs. First, I really delved deep into the, the commitment aspect of AA. I began to go to panels, go to uh, jails, prisons, to uh, recovery houses, uh, go to retreats with other alcoholics. The uh, my my, uh, my atheism uh, was really no impediment to my working the steps or my uh, sponsoring other people or listening to other people talk to me or listening to people talk about how Jesus Christ or Moses or God or Buddha or whoever helped them or saved their life. To me, that's really a, an outside issue for me even though I know the big book says that to find a higher power, to find God is the object or the purpose of this book. That is really, and that's a book written in 1939, uh, but, but it is what it is. It seems to be working for a lot of people, and I respect that, respect that uh, fundamentally. And I go to retreats, and I go to, uh, to uh, a, a, today, for instance, uh, I'm going to go to a recovery house. At 4 o'clock, we have a fundraising party. I'm involved. You know, most of the folks there are uh, uh, people who uh, assiduously attend uh, synagogues and, and churches and stuff. But I, uh, I like to be involved because I truly believe that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has, is fundamentally a program of action that really has nothing to do with theories or with paradigms or with philosophies that are, you know, people can have their own. I happen to have discovered through AA, through my friend in AA, I have happened to have discovered the, uh, uh, not the agnostic, but the uh, uh, Stoics and Stoicism. And uh, so I've, I've engaged and I've gotten involved in reading uh, daily Stoic messages from various sources. And, uh, and because I find that Stoicism, uh, like the AA principles, deal with the issue that uh, with that which is outside of my control is truly none of my business. And that uh, the only thing I can do is that which I can have an effect uh, an, uh, an effect over that which is under my control. And uh, that has made life uh, a lot more enjoyable for me. Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer of the prostate a few months ago, about a year ago. So I had to have an operation. I sought the assistance and the help of other alcoholics, sober alcoholics who have undergone similar uh, diagnosed similarly and undergone similar operations. I sought that advice. It's been absolutely fantastic, uh, solid advice. And uh, the idea of acceptance, uh, which is practiced in the, in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, has come in extremely handy. Acceptance of the fact that uh, things are what they are. Uh, they are not preordained or predestined, uh, they are exactly as they are because uh, stuff happens in life. And uh, I have to do the next indicated right thing. And the next indicated right thing, in my opinion, 
is to seek medical advice from scientists and uh, listen to these uh, ladies and guys about uh, how to how to deal with it and what are the consequences and then weigh uh, the, uh, the the consequences and then deal with them. And, and uh, I've had uh, no no problem doing that. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the paradoxes of Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book speaks a lot about the, the paradox, like uh, you you, uh, you have to give it away in order to keep it. I, I came to realize that, uh, you know, Bill W. called it a paradox in the big book, and some see it as a paradox, when in reality it really isn't. This is, that is actually the, the fundamental principle of life it, it is uh, precisely that. It is giving and taking and it's all working together as, as uh, there is no giver, no taker. The giver is also taking and the taker is also given. Uh, I, I refer to uh, uh, Zubran, Khalil Zubran's uh, book, The Prophet, where uh, Mitra asks uh, the prophet, speak to us of giving and taking. And he says that, uh, that the, uh, the rich man who gives a lot uh, of, or little of the lot that he has uh, for fame, and the poor man who gives a lot of the little he has uh, in expectation of a seat in heaven, those are merchants who just concluded commercial transactions, quid pro quo, basically. He says the true givers are those who give in expectation of nothing in return. We call that symbiosis in, in science, symbiosis in life. That those who give in expectation of nothing in return. He said, look at the valley yonder and the poplar and the roses and the flowers as they open up and give of their scent, give of their aroma, give of their beauty. And look at the bees and, and the, the, uh, the butterflies as they approach and as they suck on nectar from the uh, callus of those roses. Says in the moment the bee is suckling nectar, it's also pollinating the rose. So it is taking, but it's also giving life. And I says those are, they give in order to live. Not, not for any other purpose. That is the true nature of life. And I think as an alcohol, as a practicing alcoholic, I was denying that law of nature. As a practicing alcoholic, I was into taking and taking and taking. I didn't think of giving. And what I thought of giving, usually it's for income tax returns, so I can deduct it from that for my income as a charitable donation. There was always an ulterior motive to it. I saw in AA that you know it doesn't work that way. It's uh, you know we show up, we, we jump in a car, we drive all the way to Tehachapi in the high desert to a prison to meet uh, some uh, alcoholics who are uh, ready to listen to an AA message of hope. And uh, the, the the magic happens in the pickup point and, uh, and on the right, and also in the meeting and on the way back. And, and everything is hanky-dory. We always leave lighter and happier than we have gotten there. And uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to, uh, to this life one day at a time. Uh, and, and I'm so happy that I have awakened, that my eyes have been opened. Uh, I'm gonna quote from uh, Little Giddick of, uh, of uh, T.S. Eliot. In, in the fourth quartet, he says, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That is really what the AA inventory is all about. And we'll know the place for the first time 
through the unknown unremembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. That's when I got to really know Ralph is at the age of 50 years in 1999. And the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree. It, it's uh, AA has been an absolute treasure trove and I wish it for every single one of you. Uh, one day at a time, of course, it's a rebirth. Every day is an eternity, and for that I am grateful. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak. Uh, I'm sorry if I went too long. Thank you, Dee, and thank you, Mark, and Derek, and everybody.